0: you know you're in space, you know you're looking down on the planet, but it takes a while for your brain to process this and for it to be part of your normal experience. And even once it does, I think one of the most dramatic things, I mean, the earth is absolutely gorgeous. And as you mentioned, this thin little veil that protects us and sustains life on our planet. But when you look out in the black of space, it really gives you chills because you know that it goes forever.
1: Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodrick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Walking in space twice has got to be one of the most amazing experiences humans can have. If you're like me, you will want to hear what it's like. I loved hearing about it. Earth, seeing Earth from space, the feeling of launch, all of that uncertainty, all of those thrills, you'll have to listen to hear the rest. Having walked in space twice, however huge, is just part of Tim's experiences. He learned leadership at West Point, CGSC, which is like the Army's graduate school, Columbia Business School, and London Business School. What gets you to space isn't just fitness, it's everybody involved, from the government, everyone on down, knowing that you will succeed no matter what, that you can work with everyone. It's about people. And that's why Tim talks about integrity, consistency, followership, which I agree is integral to leading. Leading is more like teamwork, which is something that we talk about. It's about finding something bigger than yourself, which if you work in the environment, at least in my experience, is a big part of what we do. Let's listen to Tim. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spudak. I'm here with Tim Kopra. Tim, how are you?
0: Doing great today. Thanks.
1: And it's hard for me not to start off. You've been in space. (laughs) Does everyone start with that? It feels like it's a pretty big thing.
0: You know, it's it's kind of hard to get around, right? Because it's very uncommon and I'm very privileged to have had the opportunity to go to space twice, once for two months and then again for six months. That's a long time.
1: I want to get to that. Yeah. I could not help start (laughs) with that. Uh, I'm an astrophysicist. I put something up in space. And I went to the launch and that was really cool. I want to get to that in a second. There are a few things I want to talk to you about. And certainly the environment part in a bit, but leadership and right, you, you've done leadership in several different ways. You went to West Point. Yep. You went to CGSC. I did. You went to Columbia Business School, London Business School. Mm-hmm. You've been out in the field and you've had your working experience. I wonder if you can compare and contrast or maybe what of these things, does anything stand out as being more effective in way, for people who want to learn to lead? Is an academic way the best way to do it? What did you learn more or less in
0: different areas? Well, I think you know a lot of leadership is um, the learning component, the practicing component, and then the actual execution. And so, you know, West Point is actually a great place to start because you start with um, the academic components, but then very at a very young age, eighteen years old, you're giving very, very basic leadership opportunities uh, to, to learn and to grow and to make mistakes because we all make mistakes. And I think, frankly, anybody who's a leader, they would certainly tell you they made plenty of mistakes and it's, it's unavoidable because we're flawed as humans. And, you know, we learn from our practice and from uh, the actual execution that ends up being one where, you know, we make mistakes along the way, but we get better as we go. Yeah, one of the things that for me, I started
1: learning leadership in a very academic environment. And I learned a lot. But it was still, I wasn't making mistakes. You know, we were doing case studies, and maybe I'd say the wrong answer or something, but it wasn't me feeling it. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people, it's really, really scary to do something where you would make the mistake. It's necessary, but a lot of people, I think, shy away from it.
0: I think that's entirely true. I mean, no one wants to be the one who's exposing themselves to, to making those kinds of errors along the way. But I think that, you know, when, when someone is in a leadership position, First of all, you need to demonstrate that you have uh, respect for the people that you're in charge of leading. And people are, are really good censors for someone's level of sincerity. To the degree that we can be sincere and uh, forthright and honest and transparent with the people that we lead, the, the greater chances we have of building that respect. There's a really good study. In fact, you mentioned that you had spoken with the Behavioral Science and Leadership Department at West Point. I read a, one of their new publications because I've been doing a little bit of leadership training myself. And uh, one of the authors in the book talked about uh, idiosyncrasy credits, which I thought was a really interesting way of phrasing how a leader is able to be most effective. And the way that this author termed it, one of the professors at West Point, was that when you demonstrate your integrity and your consistency and fairness to the degree that one can be fair over time and people recognize what your behavior is, then it gives you this ability when things require immediate action or immediate decision, or maybe something that's a little bit off for them to still follow you because they recognize that you're a consistent person and they give you this credit, right? This idiosyncrasy credit to go ahead and act in a way that they know is at least what um, they believe will be in their best interest.
1: A couple of things that you touched on were that the putting the other person first over and over again, I find is like the more effective someone is as, as a leader, the more they divert from like what's in the movies and TV of like, you know, charging the battle and it's always about the other person and the military, the the word service always comes up and the word mission always comes up, which I feel is drives the most effective leaders.
0: No, I think that's entirely true. I think that it's also really important for any leader to be able to be a good follower. In fact, uh, one of the interesting aspects of, of, uh, of leadership within the astronaut corps is that we're trained in expeditionary behavior And it really contains three components. It's one, being able to take care of yourself and then being a good follower, which means that you intuitively know how to fit in as part of the team without having to be told. And then a good leader who understands the synergies of the strengths that he has within his team and how to combine those. And so I bring that up because even when you're a leader, there are times when you have to be the follower, right? You delegate certain things to people within your charge and you need to have a level of trust that's commensurate with the trust that they've earned. But- that ability to go back and forth between being a leader and a follower, I think, is really vital.
1: You know, you make it, you remind me, I feel like the term leadership is, I think people associate it so much with someone telling people what to do. Yeah. It doesn't quite capture. To me, following and leading and teamwork in general are so intertwined. 100%. And I have a friend who's also a, a teacher, and he says, Josh, everyone, all students in college, he says, I've taught students from all over the world. All over the world, students are basically sim- very similar. American students all believe that they're the best leaders in the world. (laughs) They're not. They're just like everybody else. But They'll think they are. And I think that that lack of humility, and I say this because my lack of humility is like, I'm I'm ashamed of it. It's like I've learned a lot of humility through like making mistakes and so forth. I could have a lot more humility, but it's very difficult to learn. I think without that, the cup is full. You can't put anything new in. And I do feel like a a lot of my students that come in to a leadership class are like, you know, I'm already a great leader. I'm like, you're 20 years old. You don't even know what you don't know yet. Well, none of us do. How do we get people to learn? How do I put it? I mean, myself included, of, of what we don't know, of what of what it takes to,
0: do you get what I'm asking? No, I do understand. I mean, I think a level of humility is important in, in any leader. And I think that the good leaders that are, are humble have probably either started out that way, or if they didn't, they were humbled along the way because they recognize that, We don't have the capacity to be perfect, and that we're 100% reliant on the people that we have within our charge to uh, to follow us. And the the best leaders recognize that the way you do that is to build and gain the respect of the people that you work with. It's putting them first is such
1: a big thing. I actually was kind of wondering. I'm going to transition over to astronaut stuff, yeah, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. And it's like in me in preparing for talking to you, I was like. I don't want to ask the questions everybody's asked it's almost impossible <laughs> not to but in here i'm going to transition a little more smoothly because i was just speaking with an uh an air force guy and asking him about what it's like being in an f-16 yeah and he's like i'm there to defend the nation it's not about speed it's about i have a mission and which caught me off guard I, it was obvious when he said it you know it's the taxpayers that's what the citizens and so i was thinking what's the mission when to to be an astronaut it's it's not defense of the nation and i'm kind of curious I presume that you're in service. I'm not sure, but what drives you? What's the? Is there a mission? Is there? Are you yeah. in service?
0: No, it's a it's a great question, right? I think it it really goes to the fundamental aspects of what motivates people in general, right? And I think that one aspect that is a huge motivator is being part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And I think that most people recognize that the ability for us to put people in space and to sustain life, and in the case of the International Space Station. Uh, conduct experiments that will be life-saving and life-improving here on planet Earth is a really big thing, and I think that every crew member, especially those who go to space station and spend a lot of time there, recognize the team aspect of what we do because we're at the very pointy end of the spear. But there's uh, you know tens of thousands of people that make that happen, and and they're reliant on us to do the best we can, and we're relying on them to take care of us and to keep us alive, and so. Uh, it it's, uh, you know, it's humbling, but it's also just a phenomenal privilege to be able to work with that kind of team.
1: Yeah, I, I just try to imagine it. And who didn't want to be an astronaut growing up?
0: <laughs> you know? I have sure no you idea. Did. I did. I mean, every six-year-old kid, I think when I was a, a little boy, wanted to be an astronaut. Um, completely unrealistic goal, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes these things happen. Sometimes, and, yeah.
1: <laughs> and when you grew up, you must have been watching astronauts in a space race. Yeah. And then you're sitting next to a Russian. I think you went up next to Russians into the Soyuz in the Soyuz.
0: Yeah, yeah, I flew with uh, Yuri Malenchiko. He was the the commander of the Soyuz, and I was his co pilot. But uh, you what know, a
1: switch! I mean, they were the enemy, and now they're our partners.
0: You know, one of the things about NASA training and preparation for uh, living and working on board the International Space Station is this really integral part of us uh, working with our international partners, and very specifically the Russians, because there are means of getting to space. Uh, there are effectively the largest other partner because they have their own mission control that's operational and not just uh, science-based. And uh, we rely on them to, to get to space. And in order to, to make that work, we started learning Russian language very shortly after getting to NASA. I've spent months living with a, a Russian family, hours upon hours of learning Russian language, time in the museum when I was living with the Russian family and part of the cultural component. All my classes were in Russian, my training was in Russian. The operations, the exams I had were all in Russian. And so after spending that much time associated with my cosmonaut colleagues and living in Russia, you know, we have a very strong understanding of the culture, the people, the language, how they think. So to me, it felt completely natural, that that aspect.
1: Wow, that's that's great to hear because cultural change is hard. And what you described to me was a major cultural shift. In your case, it felt very natural or it became natural in the end.
0: Well, as, as natural as it can be, not being a native Russian speaker. Uh, but from the culture aspect, I think it was a very gradual and effective process, Russian language. And that's a whole different story. That's a tough language. It's only like the first 10 years that are hard, I've been told. But only my first longer. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> All
1: right. Now I have to ask I'll give a couple of things I can't help but ask. And if you've answered them a million times and you're bored of it, sorry. <laughs> and if you don't want to answer, that's fine. But I, I'm like, the three big things are sitting in the spaceship before it launches, what does that feel like? During the launch. I was reading it's two hundred you went two hundred and fifty miles up in like a couple of minutes, like eight minutes. So the acceleration and the shaking I imagine must be insane. And then I really got it something that I hear or read of astronauts speaking about looking at the Earth from space and something often it's something about the biosphere of this thin little layer. And then there's this vastness of space and it's it's incredible to hear and i can't imagine the experience of it and are these things that you have said so many times that you're bored of it or is it something that you don't get
0: to say that much or no i mean it's a it's a great question and it's i mean it's a relatively common question but it's one i think that people want to know because it is so different than most people's experience base and and frankly it's kind of hard to describe certain components of it but the launch aspect you know especially with the, the Soyuz, it was my second flight. And so, you know, you feel like you've cheated death after you've been uh, to space at least once. And so, you know, perhaps you're not even thinking about that so much. And it kind of depends on your role within the spaceship. In the case of the Soyuz launch as the co-pilot, I am much more concerned about not making a mistake and doing my job than I am about the risk to life of and limb. Whereas, you know, in, in the The shuttle launch, I was on the mid-deck for the flight that I took. And that was the
1: the six-month one?
0: That was the—so my very first flight was in 2009. I launched on Space Shuttle Endeavor. I spent two months on board Space Station. I came home on the next shuttle, which was Space Shuttle Discovery. And so on that flight, when I flew, I was on the mid-deck with not many responsibilities. And so a lot of opportunity to think about the fact that, you know, people have perished exactly where I've been. And having watched— the power and the, the magnitude of the launch from the outside and then be on the inside and going through that, it's a little bit surreal mm-hmm. um, and a lot of time to think about it. But the experience for both of those in terms of the, the visual content is very similar. And that is you launch, you can feel the rumble, and then you can sense when you've left the launch pad and you're also watching the clock. You're watching as a copilot in the Soyuz. I'm watching all the indications to make sure that at least that component of the, the flight regime has happened normally. And then after a couple of minutes, the strap-on boosters are jettisoned. And th- thankfully, that worked well for us. Although, as we know, about a month ago, it didn't work so well. And uh, the crew, thankfully, came home safely. So a big milestone. Those um, strap-on boosters, that first stage is separated. And then it's a series of stages until eight and a half minutes later. You're in space, and you're not exactly at the 250 miles yet. You're about 80 or 90 miles. But then you go from this pretty strong G-force of about three and a half Gs to no Gs, and all of a sudden you're floating. Uh, the interesting aspect about going the second time is that your body and your brain completely remembers this experience. As Having spent two months on board space station before and having lived in space and become fully adapted to zero gravity... It didn't feel normal, but it also didn't feel as foreign as it would have the first time because the first time it was definitely more significant. And then we're so busy, frankly, on the Soyuz flight. After those eight and a half minutes, we're gonna do four orbits around the planet. Each one is 90 minutes. And after that, we're going to execute a rendezvous and docking to space station. So we're really focused on getting our job done. And as the co-pilot, just making sure that I had all my responsibilities covered but uh, yeah, it's a it, it is a a very bizarre thing. Even the second time to be able to look out the window and see that uh, you're getting farther away from planet Earth, and then eventually docking to space station, crawling through the hatch, and floating on to this orbiting laboratory.
1: Wow! It, it's I mean, you're just giving the play-by-play. Play. It's hard not to just I, I can't put it into words. I mean, it sounds awesome, but awesome is just an overused word.
0: We you know it's interesting. Uh, you had asked about the effect of looking out onto Earth. The first time I went out back in 2009, I remember looking out the window and it's almost like too much for your brain to handle because it's something you've never seen before. And to be there, it really feels surreal in that you know you're in space, you know you're looking down the planet, but it takes a while for your brain to process this and for it to be part of your normal experience. And even once it does, I think one of the most dramatic things, I mean, the Earth is absolutely gorgeous. And as you mentioned, this thin little veil that protects us and sustains life on our planet. But when you look out in the black of space, it really gives you chills because you know that it goes forever. It's kind of like when you're scuba diving and you look out in the the water and you look out into that dark mass when you're scuba diving and and you can't see anything, but you know it goes as far as, as it goes. But when you look out into space and you see that black, it really gives you chills because you know it goes forever. So, And also gives you this really clear sense that we are very, very alone. Like the science fiction movies where the stars are flying by and you go from one planet to the next. It's not like that. Nothing is close. Everything is very, very far away. Does that lead you to feel like we only have each other? Uh, I I think that it definitely gives you this sense that uh, we are alone. And to the extent that we're alone, we are together, right? We have what we have, and that's it.
1: It's not, it, it just feels like, is it, words you can't describe, it, it's really at the limit of what, is it at the limit of what language can convey beyond it? Um,
0: yeah, I mean, having to use words to describe emotional content is tough, right? Mm. It's like trying to describe a smell. There's like the smell of space yeah, people talk about. It's like, I listen to my crew members talk about what it smells like, and I would think, that's not what it smells like. You know, <laughs> so, you know, emotional content is, pretty much the same in that it's like, how do you describe looking down on the planet and this phenomenal beauty and diversity and phenomena that just is unbelievable? Like, I mean, a couple experiences that, I mean, that don't really describe it well enough, but the Bahamas are absolutely the most stunning, beautiful place on the planet. And you can look at, at pictures and photographs and say, well, that's really pretty. But man, when you see it in person, I mean, it it just like, it, no kidding, takes your breath away. There's one time I was trying to get this photograph of Nashville, and we're going at 17,500 miles an hour, right? And it's kind of hard to pick out a city in the daytime because you don't have a lot of good landmarks. It's kind of funny, right? It's hard to find a city. But you have your orbital path, and you have this city. And so I took a bunch of photographs. I love taking photos. And before I knew it, we were flying right over the Bahamas. And it, no kidding, was just stunning. I just, I just gasped because it was so pretty. And there's a lot of places on the planet that are like that.
1: So when I think of the Bahamas from the Earth, I think of seeing a boat f- like and water so clear that you can't even see. Is it that you can just see through the water to the underneath?
0: It's the, it's the coral formations that make these beautiful patterns. The two places I think on the planet with the most beautiful coral reefs, the Bahamas and out, actually off the coast of Mozambique. There's this one time flying over Mozambique, and same sort of experience and taking these photos, unbelievable, just blew me away. And then the next orbit, we were pretty close to the same place, but the sun had hit it and it completely transformed the way that it looked. It looked like this sheet of rippled silver that was covering the, the uh, coral formations I'd just seen before. So one lap, it was blues that they're just indescribably beautiful. The next lap around the earth, it's like this silver sheath with glistening coverage on the ocean, just blew me away.
1: It's funny because when I think of like a sunset or forests or the, or the ocean that looked really beautiful from Earth, I figure we probably evolved to find these things beautiful because it was in our environment. If we find puppies beautiful, if, like we bred dogs to look beautiful, mm. it's not obvious that the Earth from space would be beautiful because we, there's nothing in our evolutionary past or anything that would make it that way. And yet it sounds like it's beautiful beyond compare.
0: Um, I think that we're, we see beauty in nature, Right. And whatever that nature happens to be, whether it's from the viewpoint of International Space Station or from your backyard watching a sunset, I mean, it's it's really looking at at nature and the world around us and and our ability to appreciate that.
1: One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading some of your descriptions online is that uh, I think people today, I think people 100 years ago probably felt like flying was the most amazing thing, mm. and the probably would have talked about it somewhat similar to how you were talking about being from space. But I think today, a lot of people, they fly and they're just like, they just complain the whole time and they don't, I always try to look out the window and feel like, appreciate something of like, we're flying. Mm -hmm. And do you think people have gotten jaded about some, like, I think a lot of people have lost this feeling of how amazing flying can be for that matter, how amazing a vegetable can taste.
0: (laughs) You know, when you don't have a a, a tomato for a few months and you have one on board station when one of the the kind resupply vehicles packs a few I'll uh-huh. give you an appreciation for a tomato. <laughs>
1: you know I, one of the things I also thought about is that you guys have to live incredibly sustainably up there. I mean, the supplies aren't frequent in coming, and there's not you can't go to the the other fridge right and a lot of people talk about how difficult it is to live sustainably here, but like here's something I hear a fair amount. we got to get to Mars because we might not we might mess things up here <laughs> I think. <laughs>
0: There's know, things- there's no air on Mars, right? Yeah. They get- <laughs> it's a ridiculous notion to think that Mars is a better place to live than planet Earth. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> I
1: also feel that way. I mean, I, I believe our ingenuity can probably overcome a lot of things. Someday. But if the idea is that we can't live sustainably here, to live not sustainably somewhere else sounds crazy. But also, we have to get there in some spaceship that's got to be... we got sustain- If we can be sustainable there, why don't we think that we can be... Why would we not do that first here? That this is me rhetorically asking, mm-hmm. not really asking, but I don't know. You have to live very sustainably up there, right? You we have to do recycle everything. I mean, not not just recycle; like everything gets repurposed.
0: Is that right? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it, there's there's inefficiencies where we can still make improvements. I mean, clearly we try to maximize all the elements of our life support. We have to scrub our CO2. Uh, we generate oxygen from water. Uh, we recycle the water that. Coffee you had this morning is a coffee you have the next morning, kind of deal. <laughs> and so we're very conscious about that because it's very, very expensive to get supplies to space station. But, you know, we package food with two layers of plastic and we have foam that is uh, flown up in excess to protect for launch loads. We could probably do better there. There's ways that we can be more efficient there, but, you know, we work really hard at trying to improve the processes.
1: Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Well, let's transition over to the environment then, if, if, if that's cool. Sure. When you think of the environment... What, what do you think about Is it something you care about? Is it something that means something to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I'm one of the few people that has this uh, appreciation for the earth from the viewpoint of looking down at it from space, you know? Uh-huh. And I fully appreciate that. Um, and I think, you know, a friend of mine, for example, said, hey, there's this mass of plastic in the ocean that's the size of Texas. I mean, that kind of made my stomach turn. And I look for it and you can't see it because it's, it's below the surface. But the fact that we've put that much plastic in the ocean, really disturbing and I think you know some one of my primary motivators from this uh, the business that I work in now but you know we focus on improving efficiencies and energy using technology so using data analytics and Internet of Things and machine learning but applied to all sources of energy whether it's oil and gas or wind solar for energy storage and I think that in some ways in many ways actually it contributes to you know, well, maybe a small way to making things better from an environmental standpoint, because the the greater that we are able to make our energy expenditures and use more efficient, then the less we need. Right. And so far, nothing is free. Even wind has windmills or the wind turbines have negative economic effect or negative uh, ecological effect. So, I mean, we have to be careful across the board. But yeah, I, I definitely have concerns about it and I think about it.
1: So what I picked up there's a mix of beauty that you have a rare experience of, of seeing and, and experiencing, and at the same time, I think you said stomach turning of, of some of the things that we've done, affecting that that beauty, and also an active role of you're doing things to not just be—I don't know if it's being more efficient yourself or bring efficiencies to places that to reduce our our use of.
0: I think what we do, I mentioned before that I think one of the big motivators for most people is, or it can be a motivator, is doing something bigger than themselves. And I feel that to the extent that we can empower companies to provide these efficiencies, that is a fundamental good. And, uh, you know, there's economic reward there, but I think there's ecological and environmental benefit too. So it's nice to be able to couple those.
1: One of the things I do on this podcast is I ask people at their option to to act on, the things that they care about. Most people, it seems, have something that they've been thinking of or not everyone. And I wonder if you'd be interested in taking on something to act on what you're talking about. It could be the beauty. It could be the, the stomach turning. It could be the adding efficiencies. But there are a couple of things that I say before you answer <laughs> is it doesn't have to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. We're not, I'm not asking you to save anything, but just to act on your values. And it can't be telling other people what to do. It can't be something you're already doing. But something measurable. So, not just awareness or. You know.
0: Yeah, uh, this is a really small thing. And I'm glad you said, you know, you're not going to save the world because no individual is going to save the world. But, and I'm not even certain this is really a huge contributor, but it's something that I feel that I have an opportunity to share. And that is to produce some of the photos that I took from Space Station in the right format and the right quality that gives people at least a glimpse of what I was able to see. And perhaps it gives people a better appreciation for how beautiful our planet is and how special it is. So if I can pass that on, I think that would be meaningful for me personally. So when you say, do you mean post them online or do you mean like? Oh, they're all posted online. I think, you know, just maximizing the way that they're portrayed in terms of the quality of the paper, the glass it's used, the size, the the processing for the photo and, uh, you know, providing those maybe in the format of an art gallery or in a book. I think that would be something i'd love to do
1: you know when i when i got my phd there was a show in a gallery in new york i don't remember the artist's name i I bought a beautiful probably six foot tall photograph now they can make them easier but yeah it it was a view of space and it happened a satellite crossed the path so there's this green line (laughs) right through the middle of it and it was just stunning i gave it as a gift to one of my classmates Uh, just as a kind of goodbye to astrophysics because I am going to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, it it really made an impression. Uh, Part of me is thinking, is the impact, it's not lowering your environmental impact, but it might still be a really big deal anyway.
0: Uh, Yeah, I, I think that, you know, art has a way of affecting how we think and feel and in turn perhaps act. So to the extent that people appreciate the environment maybe a little bit, more clearly, as a consequence of seeing its beauty, I think that's a positive.
1: Well, part of the reason of making a smart goal is what I'd like to do is bring people back a second time and how how the experience went, which presumably for you would be seeing the expressions on people's faces as they look at the at the works that you've created. So I'd love to at least put a time part on it so we could schedule a second time to be on
0: uh, next year. How's that? A year from now? Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll we'll be back in Houston then. That sounds good. Maybe we'll be at Spacecom again.
1: That would be cool. <laughs> uh, and I'd like to close with a couple questions. I could go on, by the way, for a long time. <laughs> Actually, there's one thing I'm going to put as a question that I'm not going to ask you to answer uh-huh. unless you really want to. But, uh, you know, there's all these, these things called rebound effects where making things efficient sometimes leads people to use more of something. Hmm. And it's something that as a, as a science background, having my science background, it's something that I think I can understand a little more than the average person. But I think it's something, it's something troubling me is that I've been working on creating a lot of efficiencies but if, if that leads people to use more of it, then sometimes it increases the use, it increases the increases of pollution. So I don't know, it's something I'm thinking of, and I don't have a coherent question there. I'm going to close with this that I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's such an amazing experience. And I'm, I'm really glad that you shared it. And I, I don't think you can convey everything in it, in that experience. But to me, it's made a big impression on me, certainly as a boy growing up, wanting to be an astronaut. That's really cool. But also reading astronauts' experiences of viewing what you described, of that thin layer of the biosphere and the vastness of space. And I hope that that's something that people get an impression, something like what I get out of it, of, to me, I took away, we, we got each other. There's no second chance. And it's something beautiful. It's a, it's a tremendously beautiful gift that we have. And I think you've seen a beauty that many of us don't but I hope that we get to in a way uh, that we get to see that beauty in different ways. I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. you took big risks going up there you've helped defend our nation you've shared with us uh, I don't know just thank you very much.
0: Well thanks Joshua I appreciate that
1: I couldn't help ask Tim after recording if I asked the same questions everyone does he said yes it's pretty hard to avoid. I still loved hearing his answers. You know, before flying, seeing the Earth from hot air balloons was incredible. This is over 100 years ago, 150 years ago, something like that. Then flying came around and hot air balloons weren't so special. Now people look at flying, they're not that into it. It seems like a hassle. Maybe one day seeing Earth from space will also seem not that incredible. You could get jaded from something like that, but I look at it the other way. If people could once see beauty in flying, then so can we. If they could once see it in balloons, so can we. It's everywhere. I try to find that beauty of nature in everything. I try to find it in the basil plants on my windowsill. I try to find it in every little thing that I can. Then I feel every part is worth saving. It's worth working on. That's my big takeaway. I may never see Earth from space, but I can see that beauty in every drop of water. I still can't wait to see his gallery show soon. Did you feel inspired too? then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating, others should act first or making excuses to the empowering, I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.